So You Think You Want to Work in TV is brought to you by you. That's right. You guys support this podcast, and I rely on your donations to keep this train a-going. So please, go to so you think you want to work in TV.com, click on that upper left-hand corner where it says Donate, and make a one-time donation, or visit our Patreon and become a monthly subscriber where you will absolutely get exclusive content. So uh, become a supporter, won't you? You know you want to. Monday, you guys. I'm so excited about this episode because I'm talking to a very dear friend of mine named Stephanie Wilder Taylor. Now, a lot of you may know her because she has three very popular podcasts. One is called For Crying Out Loud, and it's on Podcast One on Adam Carolla's network. One is called Rose Pricks, and it's a Bachelor recap podcast. And one is called Sword and Scale Rewind, where they recap Sword and Scale. So it's a podcast recapping another podcast. She's insane. There's too many podcasts. Um, but uh, she and I have something in common. We both worked for uh, an executive producer who was really awful. And we get to talk about him because he's dead. So um, we talk about our trials and tribulations of working with someone who is very unpleasant, and his name was Howard Schultz. He created a show on Fox called uh, The Moment of Truth. That's when I worked for him. Um, and he also created Dating Naked. Gross, right? Ugh, I never watched the show because I just, I mean, what is that? What is that? Anyway, um, enjoy Steph. She's amazing. Check out all of her podcasts. And if you like my podcast, feel free to subscribe and become a patron at patreon.com slash want to work in TV. You will get bonus content and it will be amazing. Please get to know my pal and soon to be yours, Stephanie Wilder Taylor. Hey, Steph, I'm so psyched that you're doing my podcast. Yes, me too. I mean, so I'm in, uh, I'm Koreatown adjacent, and Steph is in the Valley. Yes, I'm in Encino, but don't come over. I don't like pop-in guests. Oh, no, I'm not going to come over, although I am someone that is a pop-in guest. No. <laughs> I would pop in. I just meant other people, listeners. I don't want anyone just like not, hey, I heard you're in Encino, what's up? <laughs> That's so funny because my neighbors, I'm one of those people that always gets to know my neighbors, so we all just pop into each other's places. Like, Oh, no, I hate that. Oh, I love it. Right now, my back door is open, so anybody can just walk in, uh, because, and I know they will. I know they will. So Right. It's very uh, like Melrose Place. Yeah, it, it's kind of, but without... Nobody's having sex with anybody. <laughs> or or burning the whole place down. Or burning the whole place down. Um, it's just it's just, you know, we we do have some drama here, but it's not it's not the kind of drama that you think it is. And I don't think I should talk about it on the podcast. Um all right, so uh Steph and I so we did we, we met each other doing stand up comedy and I had to remind um listeners, you guys, Steph was a, a wild child, I would say. Um, because do you remember when every time we did a show together, you and Lisa Sunstead would be like, let's go to crazy girls and get lap dances. And I'd be like, are you guys gay? And you were like, no, we just love fucking. Yeah, let's get a lap dance. And I just thought it was so I was so confused. I think I was always after some sort of uh, like some sort of endorphin rush back in those days. So it was like it, it was never enough to like just drink or. I mean, I wasn't doing that much more than drinking. I don't, I mean, I wasn't, 
I had my little my little coke phase, but that was for like three or four months when I was 20. And I was yeah. like, this could go downhill so fast. And so I'm sure I, somebody else was buying. Y- yes. But like the first time that I found myself going, I need to buy some coke. Where can I get enough money to buy some coke? Uh, that's when I was like, I can't do this anymore. This is too rich. But so later, I think I was always, Lisa and I were always trying to figure out something to do that to make our lives even more exciting. It wasn't enough to just do stand up and just drink. We were like, let's just go to a place that's seedy and kind of gross and kind of has a really taboo vibe. And we just liked it. I just thought it was fun. It's a, I also, I, I've been there. I think it's fun. Also, I was drinking a lot. We were dude shows. And Lisa, I don't know if you remember this, but she lived like a block away. Yeah. Right so on we would Delancre. go to her apartment. Yeah, we would go to her apartment and then we would be like, well, hell, it's, you know, midnight. Let's go to Crazy Girls. Yeah, like even after we would play, she would have those parties where we'd all play celebrity and then she'd go, let's mm-hmm. all go to Crazy Girls. And I'm like, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go home. Yeah. But I didn't, <laughs> I didn't. We'd always lose like half the crowd. Yeah. <laughs> and half the other half was way too into it. Yeah, there was just like, I, you know, I didn't, you know, it's so funny how all you guys got sober and I'm like, wait, you guys were alcoholics? I just thought you were weird. I mean, and I do that every time with people that like, oh, I was drunk. Like I have one friend who's sober now. She was in a blackout every time I knew her before she got sober and I had no idea. That's funny. Yeah, I would, I was one of those people that I, I was never the person that was drunk and staggering around. So I don't think people, even when I got sober, none of my friends like especially I had a bunch of mom friends that were like what but it was always sort of that steady like I liked to just I like to have my drinks so every time I went on stage I was like at least one or two drinks in and then it's just that sometimes it would get out of control I remember one time do you remember back when there was this open mic night at at the rage and it was Mm, on Tuesday nights yes the lovely Carol yes hosted it well You'd go there and you would sign up. And so this was like early in my stand-up days. And the gay men loved me. That I, that was my crowd. So I would get really excited to go there on Tuesdays and you'd sign up. And then the show would start like a couple hours later. Well, I remember this one time. Um, I'll never forget. I signed up and I think that I thought I wasn't going to get on stage somehow. So we went across the street to the Motherload. That was another club. It's still there. Yeah. And we drank. And the, the bartender's name was Beulah. He kept giving us drinks and I got really drunk, went back across the street and they're like, oh, you have a spot. So, of course, I didn't say like because I think I'm an alcoholic. I didn't go, oh, no, 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 I couldn't possibly do that. I'm too drunk to perform. I was like, well, OK. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I went out and I attempted to do my set and I was drunk and it wasn't going well. And my normal crowd that loves me was just kind of staring at me like, what are you doing? <laughs> and apparently I made that the universal s- signal of, oh, this the jokes are going over your head. Like I did the little hand over, over my head like, you guys aren't getting it. And I remember somebody yelled out, no, we get it. You're just not funny. <gasps> yeah. And, well, that's uh, what queens will do. They let oh, you yeah. know. Oh, yeah. And I walked off the stage. And then this woman who I can't, I can't remember who she is, was like, you need to investigate your drinking. And I was like, what the fuck does she know? She doesn't know me. What? I just happened to go across the street and have a couple of drinks. Assume me. God. 
But then I woke up the next day and I was like, oh my God, I can never go back there again. Did you go back there again? And I didn't. I did. Like six months later. I waited. I, I sat out like six months and then I came back and all was forgiven. See? But those were the types of things I would do is my point. It would be like, it wasn't all the time. I didn't come across as like, it wasn't like all my friends were like, oh God, Stephanie, she's an alcoholic. But it was just that too often there'd be a thing where I'd wake up and go, I am never drinking again. And then I would drink again. Well, I still do that, but I only do it twice a year on my birthday, which this year on my birthday I didn't get shit-faced. But uh, usually it's my birthday and Halloween. I get blotto, blackout, fucking it's on, and then the next day I'm like, I'm never drinking again, and then I drink again a few months later. Well, see, but the whole key right there is a few months later. Oh. And are you're not having any consequences, right? It's not like you're losing friends or jobs or no. anything bad's happening. Mm-mm. And you don't want to quit drinking, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love having a cocktail. But I'm one of those people, like, like, I like to have a cocktail the way that most people like to have dessert. Like, they just have a couple of bites of the really decadent thing. Like, I like to try the fancy cocktail sometimes. Sometimes I just want whiskey on the rocks. But sometimes I want to try, like, a craft cocktail. And then right. I have it, and it's out of my system, and I'm like, great, now I'm going to go night-night. Or, you know, it makes me, you know, I'm, I'm ready right. to go to bed. I love a nightcap. I never knew what a nightcap was when I was a little kid watching Love Boat. I thought it was an actual hat that you put on at night. I'm like, why are they <laughs> inviting them upstairs to wear a hat? And now <laughs> I love a nightcap. And whenever somebody says, do you want to have a nightcap? I'm like, yes, absolutely. It's my See, favorite and I hat. Hate, <laughs> I hate people like you. Because, really? Yeah, because Aww. how? that's not fair. Why do you get to just like have a nightcap and right. go, this is delightful. Ooh, I love a licorice flavored liqueur. <laughs> I'll have a sip. Oh. I'd like to try that. I like to, I used to like to go to like Lola's that had the flavored martinis. Oh, I love that like place. six of them. Yeah. I was like, well, I really like the green apple one. So I'll have two of those, but I can't <laughs> leave without having also the chocolate one and also this one and the coffee one. Oh, that has three Sambuca. That has coffee beans and Sambuca. Yes, please. Like I, you know, That's so I don't have funny. an off switch. Anyway, yeah. life is that that was, I've been sober almost 10 years. So. Holy cow. That congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. That's fabulous. Well, how did you go from uh, being a comedian who uh, got hammered and then had gay men going, yeah, we get it, girl, uh, to being, you know, I mean, you've written five books? Five books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you're very accomplished. You've been a TV writer. You've done so much. Like, And you did all that before you got sober. I Not wrote, all of it, but you wrote. I think I wrote two or two three books. of the books. I think I wrote three books before I got sober okay. and then two since I got sober. Uh, well, so I was doing standup and I, I love, I love doing standup, but I hated the anticipation. I don't love being on stage, which is but a weird you are thing. So funny. You are so Thank funny. You. So are you You're so funny. Thank you. I just, you know what? I felt that it was tor- Every set was a bit of torture for me. I didn't like the worrying about how I was going to do. I was, I'm a very controlling person, which is something I try to work on, probably comes from anxiety, but I, I did not like the feeling of worrying about who was going on before me and what the crowd was like and are they going to get me and maybe my humor is too subtle for this crowd and oh shit, they really love the juggler. They're going to hate me. I was just so, 
it was just so much on every set that I didn't like it. But what I really liked was writing. I really liked writing the jokes. I liked the whole camaraderie with the other comedians. I loved hanging out at the club. I loved watching other comics. The Just the part I didn't like was performing it myself. And once I kind of accepted that about myself, I was like, oh, I think I want to be a writer. Like, I don't see myself as being this person who tours the country performing. I see myself as sitting in a writer's room writing for the person who's going to go out there and do the joke. That seemed really fun to me. So once I realized that, I was like, well, how do I get that job? I really want to have that job. I want to work on a TV show. I really wanted to work on a game show. I know, which is weird, but I grew up loving game shows. And I was like, how did people get those jobs to write the questions for them? But I also wanted to write comedy. So what, what is sorry, there is a, King Kong in there? What's happening? My dog has a witching hour where it's like <laughs> right around this time, she just goes crazy and like starts playing with toys out of nowhere. So, okay, she left the room. But, that's so but anyway, and now she's back. <laughs> <laughs> what kind oh of dog God. is this? Sorry, she just went crazy for no reason. Yeah. Okay, so here's what happened. I was waiting tables and I have a bad attitude, which will come up later in the conversation. And I kept getting fired from waiting tables jobs because I just wasn't a great waitress. And also, I just didn't like putting up with people's crap. Which, and I which, just had higher aspirations, you know. Which are any of the restaurants you got fired from still around? Yes. I got fired from the Gaucho Grill, which is on the Santa Monica Promenade. I love Gaucho Grill. Yeah. Loved their food. Yeah. Managers, not so much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I got fired from... Oh my God, there's one place that's in the valley that had really good food. Not, I haven't been able to remember the name of it in years, but I got fired from this place that's no longer there. It was a sports bar on Wilshire. And then the last job I got fired from was an Irish pub on Wilshire. And I want to say like 26th. Oh, so they were all in Santa Monica. O'Brien's. O'Brien's. Yes, I know O'Brien's. How do you get fired from O'Brien's? I got fired on the first night. Yeah. So I was supposed to be getting trained, but the girl, the cocktail waitress who was training me never showed up. So I was like, all right, well, I'll do my best, you know, and I'm, I'm trying my best and trying to figure out the ordering system and the bartender's kind of helping me. And there was a girl who was really drunk and being abusive to one of the bus boys. She was, this be happened sort of, I'd already been there for like four hours and Obviously, I'm sober at this point, and this girl's kind of drunk and honestly wearing some leggings. What are the people wearing in those days? Spandex pants, you know, with the um, what do you call those pants that had the strap under the under your oh, foot? Oh, yeah, a stirrup pants. Stirrup pants. Yeah, she was wearing some like spandex stirrup pants, and I don't know. I I wasn't I liking her at all. So she's being abusive to the busboy. But, and so at one point she called him a stupid Mexican and I, I lost my mind. I was like, get out. How dare you? Don't talk to people that way. Who do you think you are? Nice pants. And, uh, <laughs> well, it turned out she was friends with the owners. So she left all in a huff, but I guess she called them or I don't know what happened, but so the end of the night happens and the boss calls me in the back and he's Irish and he's just like, Oh, um, 
you're, you know, this is going to have to, I, I can't do an Irish accent. <laughs> I know That's, you sounded. Hello, laugh. <laughs> going to have to be your last night. Sorry. I, that was a little bit of Scottish in there and maybe Italian accent. But anyway, I got fired. He was like, I don't want any trouble. But, you know, you yelled at the wrong cl- per- person and she was a, she's a very good customer and, and you got to go. And I was crying. I really need this job. And she's like, he's like, I'm sorry can't do it. So I leave and I'm like, what am I going to do? I've been fired from every job. Like I've burned my bridges as a waitress. So I went drinking at Barney's Beanery. Oh, okay. And you probably know this person. Do you know who Jackie Pittman? Do you know Jackie Pittman? Why do I know Jackie? Oh, wait, isn't Jackie Pittman an acting teacher? No, she's a casting. Oh, Jackie Pittman, the casting. Yes. Yes. I do know who that is. Okay. So Jack, I, okay. This is, now I'm giving you some dirt that Jackie Pittman might not even remember. Although I think I have, okay. So hopefully she won't listen, but if she does, it doesn't matter. Okay. So a few years before that, I went on an audition to be on the show studs and I didn't really intend to go on the show, but I sort of was doing it for fun and because I, I'm a fan of these kind of shows. But I think in my mind it was still kind of a joke, like I'm not really going to go on the show. But I went to the audition and I was being really wrong for the show. Like they ask, they ask you when you're sitting around in this casting call, who, what celebrity you would want to date? And I said, Kevin Nealon. <laughs> and everybody else was like Brad Pitt, like, you know, Keanu Reeves. Like these were the people that, they, and I was like, Kevin Nealon. And I think they just thought I was kind of different and funny. I was like, I like a funny guy. I like kind of a little ethnic looking, you know, but like cute. And um, so they book me for the show and they give me the guys to call. And it just so happens they say they say when you get there, they're like, we're not going to give you and you're this will be a blind date. Nobody who's in your audition will be someone you're set up with. But there had been this guy in my audition group who was so gross. He was this burnout, like weird, frizzy hair. He was wearing shorts and cowboy boots. He was like a like a weirdo. Sounds like a talk- homeless guy. He looked kind of homeless, but more like a burnout. Like he used to be way too into heavy metal. Oh and yeah. Then, and he's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I used to be a lawyer and I had my own plane and I like to just like hang out. But he he was awful, awful, braggy, but also disgusting looking. So. I get my guys and I'm supposed to call them and and talk to them on the phone and set up our date. And I call the first one and he's like, Hey, how's it going? You know? And I'm talking to him and I'm like, God, his voice sounds so familiar. And he's telling me stuff. And I go, you don't have your own plane, do you? And he goes, yeah, do you know me? And I was like, I think you were in my audition. And then I hang up and I call Jackie Pittman and I said, I can't do the show. And she's, what? What are you saying? Like, you can't drop out. You know, at this point, I'd already been matched with people. They're depend- having, you know, at the time I didn't know, but having worked on dating shows specifically, I know what a pain in the ass that was. Oh, yeah, like, that's, I was- that's really fucking them over. Did you already sign paperwork saying you were going to do the show? No. Oh. No. I mean, I had signed stuff saying that I wanted to be on the show. I think I'd already signed a release, but... No, I hadn't done anything beyond the audition. Okay. I think I had a callback. So I hadn't, yes, I had an audition. I had a callback. 
And then they matched me. They said, you're in. And they matched me. So I was still fucking them over, though. They were going to have to find someone else. So I called Jackie and she's like, seriously? (laughs) And I was like, I'm really sorry. I just I can't do it. Okay. so then a few years go by. I'm in Barney's Beanery drinking, being sad that I can't get a job. Jackie Pittman's there. I recognize her. She doesn't recognize me, but she doesn't know where she knows me from. I know where I know her from. Uh, She's a big, beautiful black woman. Hard to miss. It was like, you know, I'm a just a non-differentiated white chick. So I'm sure she was just like, I don't know. You look familiar. She's like, where do I know you from? And I said, I don't know. We couldn't figure it out. She's like, well, I'm booking this dating show. Would you be interested in coming on? And I said, not, no, not really, but do you need writers? And she said, well, maybe. Do you, uh, send me your resume. So at the time, I didn't have a computer. I mean, this was a long time ago. This was in the 90s. But my neighbor had a computer. I didn't have a resume. I mean, I was a waitress. You don't need a resume to wait tables. Right, you fill out I applications. Would, right. So I well, go Well, now home. you need a resume. Now you sure do. Yeah. Or a CV or a CV, excuse me. Yeah, I don't even know what that stands for. It's uh, something, uh, something. <laughs> <laughs> I looked it up. It's like something verite or, or versite. Oh, curriculus God. versite, uh, cunty version of a resume. Right. It sounds CV right. is for cunty, the cunty version. Why can't we just call it a resume? Yeah. Why it's do we have to have a cunty version for it? Yeah, why do we call treatments decks now? Why? I don't know. I don't get it. It's fucking stupid. So dumb. So, so anyway, all right, so Jackie, I'll, you're like, hey. I'll, I'll fast forward yeah. through this. So I make up, I basically write a resume uh, with a couple of, like that I've done stand up and I've written jokes for people. And I at one point worked for Alan Thicke briefly in development. And I put that down. And um, Mike Maddox was the supervising producer. I get a call saying, do you want to come in? And do you want to come in for a meeting? And I'm, I lose my mind. I was so excited. So I go to the, where they're doing, they were, they, I don't know if they'd been picked up. Maybe they had, but I went and watched the, them do a run through. And then he said, okay, so here's what it looks like. Here's the type of questions. Go home and write some questions. I had to submit, which I'd never done that before. So I took it very seriously. I spent like two days crafting my questions. I sent them in and then I waited and waited and I called back a few times and then I got called in and I had a meeting with Howard Schultz where he asked me all, he put me on the spot. And oh yeah, we have a, a audience, we have a lot to say about Howard Schultz. This, is, this yes. is why this is all happening. At the time, at the first time I met him, I thought this guy is very intense but I was really eager to please. Obviously, you could imagine how heightened this was for me. So I was nervous and, you know, trying to say the right thing. And, you know, I figured it went well, go home, but then I don't hear anything. And then I call several times and then I finally get a call from Howard Schultz and he says, how would you like to come work on the show? And I said, yes, please. And then he said, I can pay you $850. And I was like, fabulous. What time should I be there? I mean, I didn't even know enough to try to, not that I would have negotiated, but I was like, I'd never heard of that much money. I right. swear, I think the most I'd ever made waiting tables was like 400 
let's just say I worked four shifts in a week and made a hundred dollars. That would be like, that would be a great week for me as a waitress. Yeah. And of course this was in the nineties, you know, $400, you could live on that in LA. Yeah. Yeah. Now you're lucky if you can't, you, you can't live on anything in LA really. <laughs> I mean, no, so you really can't. yeah, I feel bad for the young kids that are coming out here, but so you got the job and then you just by, I think that's kind of genius that you were smart enough to say when Jackie said, do you want to be on a dating show? You were like, not really, but I'd love to be a writer. And that she totally didn't remember you fucking her over on studs. Like, no, she, I don't know if she ever remembered. Yeah. That's brilliant. I never reminded her. Good. I mean, that's what I mean. Like that's, I love that you did that. That's like a lesson for me. Although I do do that sometimes where I'm like, no, you don't know me from that or you don't know me from this or no, I've never met you before. And, you know, but and but, right. but, you know, credit to me, I don't wear my glasses a lot because I'm nearsighted. So if I don't see you, you're not there. Right. So right. I don't have then to say hi to people. Mm -mm, you don't owe people shit. <laughs> not a goddamn thing. I don't, so, I don't see you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see you. I don't. I have no idea if you're here. So, so you got the job on the show, and how was that experience? So, uh, it was great. I mean, I described like my first day as kind of as like that working girl experience, that scene from the end of Working Girl. Like, I walk in and I'm thinking, I don't know what I was thinking. Honestly, was thinking I'm going to be bringing people their coffee and I'm going to be, I don't know, helping out in some way, you know. I don't know what I don't know. And then they say, okay, here's your desk. Do you, are you, are you Mac or IBM? And I'm like, what? I mean, sure. Yeah. <laughs> and I go, you know, they said that to me actually on the phone. And then I go in and they're like, there's your office with your desk, with a computer. Go have at it. You must have been dying. Like, oh, my, like that, that's for me. Like I just, me, I just sit there. And think of stuff. Oh my God, I went to heaven, you know. How, what was and the Mike, show? What was the show called? It was called The Big Date. Okay. And, and it what was network a dating was it? show. Okay. It was on. Uh, uh, TBS. Okay. Maybe. Yeah, hmm. I think it was on TBS. I can't remember, but uh, it was really fun. And Mark Wahlberg, not Marky Mark, but Mark Wahlberg was our host, and they he was. Yeah, they hired him to host the show that I produced for Howard. They love oh, okay. him. Okay. Yeah. They love him. They love him. I have to say he was a great host. He was really smooth. He was a super nice guy. Like one of the nicest guys ever. I mean, and I was spoiled by that because I hadn't ever worked with a different host before, so I thought they were all nice, but he's that kind of guy that remembers everything about you. He says hi, he makes eye contact. He's like eager to sit and talk with you and if you have any notes for him or when you give him the information he like he's really present like he listens to you and then he goes out there and spits it all back out in a perfect like he hardly ever had to do pickups just a smooth easy nice guy so that part was really fun honestly everything about the show was fun except for Howard yeah. because what happened is Howard became this really weird force on the show where he thought he was hilarious he loved being the boss and he was very um, Machiavellian in a weird way. Like he just sort of wanted to pull all the strings of everybody and show and make everybody. He loved it when people were scared of him. Uh, he was trying to 
get all of the okay so the office was split into two very distinct areas there were kind of the all the writers and creative people were on one side and then all the contestant people the line producer the ap's the other staff were all with on his side and all of those people were constantly being harangued to join the forum of which he used to be an est leader right so the landmark forum is what we're talking about Right. Yeah. He really liked people to join the forum. So all the receptionists would end up joining up. All the people that sort of were more dependent on him and all the sort of free thinking writers were like, yeah, fuck that. Fuck that guy. Not interested. No, thank you. Well, what's weird is like he he never put I don't from what I remember, but I was also in my own personal hell, which we'll get to later. But like I never remember him pitching other staff members to, you know about the forum and asking them to take the forum but I did uh, but I did hear that he was a forum leader at some point like he used to be one of those guys that used to lead the forum right yeah and I'm just wondering how do you make the transition from forum leader to production company and actually sell shows like the whole thing just doesn't make sense to me and it makes me angry uh, and by the way the big date was on USA Network oh, okay yeah um, but yeah, I just like I can't. I you I think know. it's be- the charisma. I think it's just the force of personality. I think he would go in and tell people. I mean, he's charming in a weird way. He's very. He was. He was. He was very smart, but not that smart, I guess. Well, I mean, I think I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that he was like a tall man that would that would command a room because he's doing his fucking Jedi mind tricks. That's and, what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, you know, because and the only reason I have to call it Jedi mind tricks is because I happen to think that you and I are very charismatic Uh, and we should have been the person who had the production company selling all the show. You know, it's just one of those things. One of the things that I learned, you know, on a macro level uh, in the business after working for Howard is sometimes really gross, shitty people make a shit ton of money and they get away with treating people like shit and nobody ever holds their feet to the fire. Well, that's what I think a big problem with Howard was, is I think he got away. He was very sleazy. He was a shyster. He was a thief. And people were scared of him. Yeah, I was scared of him. I was scared of him. So during my first, so uh, during the first cycle of the show, we were just sort of getting started and figuring out a system. And Mike was our was basically working as a head writer and he was the supervising producer. He acted as a head writer. So what that means is we would all write sort of jokes like intros for they, we, they had a certain type of joke, which was it's too long to explain, but different types of material. We would write jokes. So Mike thought the best thing to do was to not put any names on any of it. So he would just bring in a stack of material. We would just write stuff all day long. And then he would go every week. He would bring a bunch of material into Howard and Howard would yay or nay stuff. Okay. And then we would go into a meeting and go over all the material that was approved and, and, and read some of the stuff that was maybe borderline. And, uh, so Howard didn't know who wrote what, and I would notice that a lot of my material was getting in, but apparently for some weird reason, I was the only girl on the on the writing staff and Howard apparently according to Mike Maddox said that he didn't like my material even though Mike told me he doesn't know whose material is whose 
So I don't know how he just, he just decided that he didn't like me is really what happened. Yeah. So he didn't think I was a good writer based on nothing. So I knew that he wasn't basing it on my actual writing. And it was, of course, awful. It was an awful feeling to know that your boss doesn't like you. And as I was telling you the other day, I did have a bit of an attitude because it carried over from my table waiting jobs. You know, I I was one of those people that constantly thinks things are unfair. Like, well, how come that they're doing it like that? That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. And, you know, you learn in TV kind of quickly to suck stuff up. Yeah. Like, a lot of people don't know what they're doing. You don't need to point it out all the time. Like, it doesn't make you everybody's friend to go like, well, we shouldn't really do it like that. Or, and a big lesson I learned early was about fighting for material. Because I would sit in those writers' meetings, and if I saw one of my jokes that I thought was pretty good, and they would, you know, if Howard was like, no, next. You know, a lot of times I would be like, well, hold, hold on a minute. I thought that one was pretty funny. I think it could work because blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the whole room will just look at you. Right. Like, shut up. Let's move on. Can't be married to your material. Well, so Mike Maddox took me aside at one point and told me that. He was like, Stephanie, you have to stop fighting for your material. It's exhausting. And it's not It's not going to get it into the show. Like, it just makes people want to move, you know. And it was hard to hear. It was a criticism that was very hard to hear. But as I said, I really was happy with the job and I was so happy that I had this opportunity and I didn't want to blow it. So I was very motivated to like do better. But Howard did not like me. He had just decided, he just had it out for me. And one day it kind of came to a head and he dragged me into this conference room and he just started being abusive is the only way I can describe it. He was just like, what's wrong with you? You know, you have an attitude and I don't let you know, you can't handle any kind of criticism and it's going on and on and on. And I'm just sitting there and I don't know what to do. And Mike Maddox is looking at me like, don't say anything. Don't say anything. So I, I don't. And the more I don't say anything and I don't react positively or negatively, the more I don't react, the more he tries to manipulate for a reaction. And it became really scary. I mean, he was just staring me down. And and I, what I realized was he just wanted me to cry. He yeah. wanted me to cry. And he kept saying, you're not good enough. I mean, he was being mean and manipulative and going, you're not good enough. You don't deserve this job. Like he was trying to say things. And he told me I was the weak link. When he, he said goes, this- you know, you're the weak link on this writing staff, don't you? And when, I find, yeah. Well, when he said those things to you, was he smiling and smirking or was he like dead yeah, serious? No, he was cut, both. He was both. Yeah, because that's what he did to me. He was like smiling and smirking and then he'd go back to serious and then he'd smile and smirk at me as he just completely berated me. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he was just berating me and it felt very much like my stepfather. Like it felt like this authority figure, male figure that I get very defensive around. You know, I had a really defensive relationship with my stepfather. I started really talking back to him at a young age because he was very abusive. And I, 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 my reaction to that kind of abusive personality is to fight. Like I don't cower and just go, I fight. Like I go, fuck you, you're a cocksucker. You know, I don't, I just reached this point. This was with my stepfather where I was like, I don't care anymore. Like, I don't care. I'm just biding my time until I can leave my house and go get a job and be on my own. So if you're going to try to scare me or you want to beat me up, just bring it. Like, let's just get it done. That was my thing. So I would find myself sometimes reverting to that with 
authority figures, especially people with that type of personality like Howard. But I didn't want to do that. Like I didn't want to have a confrontation with him because even in my mind, I what I was like, I've got to keep this job. Like I'm not going to let him. And I was going to therapy. Like I really was trying to better myself even at that time. I was trying to improve and not screw this up. So this was like, this was like the gunfight. This was like, oh my God, it's all my therapy. It's all coming down to this. Like, how am I going to react to this? And I held, I just kept my cool. But the more I kept my cool and didn't do that old behavior and go like, you know what? Go fuck yourself. I don't need this job because I did need the job. The more I didn't do that, the more he was trying to get me to do that. Like, I think he wanted me to quit and he wanted. So finally, I think I just like tears, you know, he broke me like tears. Just I started crying. And then I'll never forget. He just looked at me like, okay, now we're getting somewhere. And kind of did the like, who hurt you? Like, was it your fault? Like that kind of thing. He started trying to like psychoanalyze me. It was such awful, awful, awful. But then he sort of let me go and he didn't fire me. And I just felt so relieved that I didn't get fired. And then later Mike Maddox was like, I'm so sorry. Like that was so uncomfortable and awful. And then I went and told um, our, our mutual friend who passed away, Danny Breen. I was sharing an office with Danny. I came in there. I was beside myself. I'm sure I was like, come get a cup of coffee with me. I told him what happened. But then the weirdest thing was that after that, Howard started being totally nice to me. It, it was like, I don't know what happened, but he just started being nice to me. And then Mike Maddox started putting our names on all the material. And he realized that most of the stuff he liked was coming from me. And then he started being really mean to a different employee, to a guy who had the material he didn't like. And he would berate him. That Then we would be in writer's meetings and he'd be like, I'm not going to say the guy's name because that would be mean. But he would, like, let's just say his name was John. He'd be like, John, are you kidding me? It's like the Why would you even put that in there? I mean, just mean. And I would unfortunately just in my mind be like oh my god thank god it's not me wow and then I worked that was in the first season and then I got asked back and I did an entire another season and it was really pretty fun because he and then I have obviously a story about him later but what so tell me your so you worked with him on Moment of Truth. Right, on the Moment of Truth. It was 2007 at Fox. And just, it was the same thing where uh, I had a, an associate producer. They paired me with this associate producer named Quante, uh, who, like I was telling you, like I, I literally think his name was like Steve, but he changed it to Quante because <laughs> he wanted to really keep it 100. But this guy <laughs> was like... Well, that was not keeping it 100 at no, all. Exactly. That's keeping it 0% because you're right. lying about your fucking name. But this guy, like, Howard hired him because he was a nude model for artists. And he was like, if you can stand in front of a room full of people naked and look at them, then you can really see into their soul. Because that was his whole thing with this show, The Moment of Truth. It was about breaking people down on live television. Right, right. And horrible show. Horrible show. And I remember when we were doing run-throughs for the show, it was just supposed to be the contestant and the host going through their lie detector test questions. And this was the lie detector show for the audience where, you know, you, you would get, if you told the truth, 
and then you would you'd you'd win a hundred thousand dollars. Then if you told the truth three more times, then you'd win another hundred thousand dollars. It was kind of like a bracket system of telling the truth to try to win a bunch of money. And our lie detector guy was the he passed away, rest in peace, was the guy who did the lie detector for the parenting show on NBC. The guy who was from New York and he would he had a big mustache and he would stand there and he'd go, You lying when he took the lie detector test. Oh, I don't know Meet, which guy that is. It what was, parenting show are you talking about? It was about? called Meet the Parents. It was on NBC. It was a reality show that was like a knockoff of the movie. Oh, okay. For the for for adopted kids? No, it, it was one? for it was for couples. Oh, okay. I remember. Yes, I yeah, remember. Yeah, and the young kids would about. be like, "I want to marry this guy." And then the parents yeah. would be like, "Well, let's see." And then they'd take a lie detector test, and the lie detector guy would be like, "He's a liar." But he and I used to talk on, you know, in between, you know, when I when I didn't have a segment shooting or if I didn't have one of my contestants taking a polygraph, he and I would talk about football and we would talk about whiskey and he was so great and I'm so sad he's dead. But he was so great. Anyway, What did he die of? Heart attack. Oh. Yeah. Well, I mean, he smoked and drank, and he he lived the life of a detective, baby. Oh, okay. He deserved yeah. it. He deserved it. He so earned it. When you so you were being a producer, so yeah. did you have to figure find because this was a big thing I remember about Howard, um, like really quickly. This was on such a lower stakes level, but we would have these kids that were like eighteen years old, and he would want we would have to find out things about them that they would then later admit on the show, like it so. They would have to say whether things were true about them. See, he loves shows. Howard loves shows like this. So I would have to find out dirt about these people, and then the other person that they win on the show with would have to say whether the information's true or false. Well, that's exactly so, what we did. Right. So we'd have to find out stuff like about their past. Like, I, what, like, where's the craziest place you ever had sex? Oh, well, one time it, I had sex in a Burger King bathroom. You know, whatever. So then you'd be like, okay, because you're that's your old. gold. Yeah. Right. Exactly. But that's so that's your gold. Right. So that's what you whip out. That's what happens if that contestant makes it to the final round. That's going to be your grand your granddaddy of questions. And then the girl that they win with is going to have to say that if they think that's true or false about the person. OK, so you'd have to get some really good, true stuff. And then you'd make the part I liked was making up the false stuff, like funny things that then the person would be like, I think that's true. And you'd be like, no. So but you'd have to go in and pitch your stuff to Howard and he'd. And you'd tell him the things and he'd be like, well, did that really happen? Okay, so sometimes you'd have a really boring contestant where you'd, you didn't want to go into Howard and have it known that you couldn't come up with something juicy about them. Right. Right? Like it was your job as a producer to get something out of them. And if you couldn't, he felt like you weren't doing your job. But sometimes I'd get these, they're kids. Like I'd have like an 18-year-old girl who hadn't done much. So you'd have to come up with something that was at least sort of sexy. And I remember one girl, I wrote down that she could tie a cherry stem in a knot with her tongue. And I don't even remember, I swear to God, if it was true or false, but I put that down as a true thing. And Howard was like, is it true? And I said, yeah. And he goes, really? Oh, he okay. loves to do that. Really? Really? He goes, well, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what, I'm going to bring in a cherry stem and she's going to do it. And if she can't do it, you're fired. Stuff like that, where it was like, then I'd be shitting myself going, oh, my God, what if she can't do it? And then he's going to think I lied. And then, you know, and then he'd forget about it by the time the tape day happened. And he wouldn't do that. But he made us we were all scared. It, he wasn't saying it as a joke. Like you'd be sitting there in his office and he'd be like, she better be able to do this. 
No, this was different. Uh, this was like, first of all, they were adults, so they did have dirt, and we would right. get that dirt. And the way that we would fuck them over on this show was, somebody would say, uh, uh, "I've I've never cheated. Have you ever cheated on your wife?" And they'd go, "No." And if the lie detector was like, "That's a lie," we would find the person they cheated with and bring them on the show. And they'd go take a look at the bench to your right, and they'd look over, and there would be the person sitting next to that person's current wife, and then the mistress is right next to her. It was it was terrible. And here's something I didn't tell you. So getting back to Quante, he would wear T-shirts that say snitches are bitches and all this bullshit. Didn't know how to use a computer. Didn't know how to use Microsoft Word, Excel. And I said to Howard, I'm like, I need an AP who's competent. He's a very nice man. I go, but he's never worked on a TV show before, I can't do all of this myself. But and Sharon, he did do nude modeling. He did do nude modeling. It, it, that is a skill, but we can't, <laughs> you know, unless he can make his dick teach him how to use Microsoft Word, it's not, like, it's just not a marketable skill in this arena. But we dealt with some really, really crazy people on the show, and, you know, they went through psych and everything else as we were producing them. So as I'm getting information about them, as I'm writing the questions for their polygraph, as I'm talking to all the people in their life and getting dirt on that, on the contestant so I can write questions about them, one of our contestants didn't pass psych. So I had to call her because I didn't have an AP. I had to do everything myself. I had to call her and say, I'm sorry, but we're not going to be able to use you on the show. She had a fucking Because you're crazy. I couldn't say because she was crazy. Legally, you can't say it's because they're crazy. Right. So You I couldn't said, tell her it was because she didn't pass psych? No. I had to say, we overbooked the show, but maybe we'll have you on next season. You're if so you can, great. If you could get on some meds and be a lot less crazy. Yeah, exactly. And then maybe you'll pass psych. So <laughs> she and her boyfriend were so upset they wouldn't stop calling me. Now, at the time, I had just shot one of those talking head shows for E! called uh, wildest cop show moments where they show the <laughs> clip and you go, look at that cop. What an idiot. Boopity boopity boop. Well, this is a horrifying story. So the show's wrapped. It's, you know, it's already on the air or whatever. I get a phone call from one of my colleagues on the show and they were like, did you see the video of you on YouTube? And I went, <gasps> what? Okay. So this crazy bitch, she saw me on E! And she was like, this is the same Sharon Houston I've been talking to on the phone. This is why I started using a different name when I work as a producer. It's because of this incident. What she did is she pulled clips of me from the E! show. She made a video where she faked her own suicide and <gasps> blamed me. Oh, no, she didn't. Yes. So I'm watching this. It was a seven-part series on YouTube that her and her boyfriend did where they're cutting back and forth to her boyfriend crying, talking to her on Skype. Like, they recorded all the Skype calls of him going, no, don't do it, don't do it, and her crying with a fake gun to her fucking temple. And then intercutting my voice, because she recorded our phone conversations, and of my voice going, I'm so sorry we can't have you on the show. You're great. Maybe next season. It's just not going to work out for this season. We're overbooked. And then cutting to me on TV and her going, you fucked me over. I'm killing myself. So oh then, my God. Yeah. So then Variety's calling me, Backstage is calling me, Hollywood Reporter is calling me. And I'm like, I don't want to talk about this. I call Fox's lawyers. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? I call my attorney. It was, it, it, it ended up getting, they, 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 
they had to pull everything down off of YouTube. But it was horrifying, and I was just like, Did she get arrested? She should have gotten arrested for that. She didn't, and I think she moved away because her and this boyfriend were engaged. I don't know what happened to her, but here's the creepiest thing. Cut to two years ago, I'm doing a storytelling show in Silver Lake. It's packed. It's all these like Broadway guys that live here now. It's, you know, it's a very fancy show. And this man walks up to me and he goes, hi. And he reaches out his hand. He goes, you were great tonight. I'm so-and-so. Do you remember me? And I was like, <sighs> no. And he goes, I, uh, you tried to have my girlfriend on the moment of truth. <sighs> and I, and then I literally pulled my hand back and I said, don't ever fucking talk to me again. And if you come any closer to me, I will call the police. Wow. What did he do? He just walked away. But this is how wow. scary it is. It's like, you you know, the people that want to be on these, a lot of these reality shows, even the dating shows, even like the, the shows that seem harmless, these, a lot of these people are crazy. And proof, uh, proof of this point is that all these YouTubers that have a huge following, so they're getting TV deals and then they find out, oh, they're going to, they, they're going to fuck with dead bodies who, uh, of people in Japan who committed suicide or they're a psychopath or they're schizophrenic. Well, right. they never made those people try to go through psych. They just went, oh, they've got a lot of YouTube fans. Give them a TV show. No, put them through psych first. Right. Because right. you're putting your employees that produce them in harm's way if you don't. I agree. I agree. I remember talking to a guy who worked on Dr. Phil who... I, and I can't even tell you the story because I will just mess it up too much. But I just remember that he had to go. They basically wanted this producer to go talk to this guy who had been proven to be like an abusive guy, like a weird stalker, abusive guy. And the guy that I was talking to was like insisted on going with her because he was like, I can't believe they're sending this female producer to go fly to another place to go with this unstable, abusive Man, he was so appalled that they were doing that that he just he flew with her as protection and they wouldn't pay him. It was like a terrible story. He there's just no you know, the people that you're dealing with are crazy people. They're crazy people. They're crazy people. I mean, and the people that you actually see that make it onto the show, I tell people all the time, especially if on shows like The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, like the casting people will fall in love with somebody and go, this girl is amazing. She'd be so great for The Bachelorette. And then the next sentence that comes out of their mouth is, I bet she won't pass psych. And right, she doesn't. Right. <laughs> you know, the ones that you love the most that are going to be the craziest on TV aren't going to pass the psychiatric evaluation. Right. But I just thought it was weird that they had us produce people who hadn't passed psych yet. Like, like really produce them. Like I was deep into this girl's life, talking to everyone she knew, her employers, her best friends, her boyfriend, everyone to get information on her so I could write questions for the polygraph. And she hadn't passed psych. And literally the, I found out the psychiatrist sat with her for maybe 10 minutes and was like, oh, this bitch is nuts. Like usually they sit with you for 45 minutes to an hour to, to right. assess your mental capacity or your mental health. In 10 minutes, she was like nuts out bing bing i'm gonna get to take a lunch break today <laughs> right 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 but yeah that so was how how would you find though the real dirt because you must have had to present howard with gold right i mean yeah. because they didn't want them to win the million dollars or whatever 
Correct. couldn't get that high, so you needed them to lie about something. Well, I mean, I don't think they minded if they got that high, but they just, what they were, it wasn't even about not awarding the prize money for the game show. It was more about, we want this to be a fucking scandal. Like, there was one woman who was on the show, and I forget the story, my friend James produced her. She was so hated. This was a huge show in 2007, 2008. People hated her so much she couldn't walk through the streets of New York City. She got attacked on a subway. She got attacked on her own block because she came out as someone who was an adulterer. And her boyfriend was sitting on the bench, or her husband was sitting on the couch, of friend, the friends and family couch. And when we were doing run-throughs, it was supposed to be just the contestant and the host. And then Mike Darnell, who was the head of Fox Alternative at the time, was like, let's do friends and family. So I, me, and, the, and Cindy Damashek, this other producer, were we would role-play as the friends and family. And that's how that sh- part of that element of the show came to be. So th- it was this... You know, so, you know, there's the audience looking at this poor woman's boyfriend who just found out that she cheated on him or did something awful to him, and the camera's on him sitting on this couch, and it's really uncomfortable and awful, so people fucking hated her, and she couldn't right. go anywhere. But she won the money. I mean, I, I don't know how much money she won, because you, you go out at a certain point, and you can say, you can say, I think the gameplay was like, okay, you've won $10,000, you can walk away, or you can answer three more questions. And they're right. like, I want to go for it, Mark. Okay, great. And the funny thing about Mark Wahlberg, he's so sweet, and we used to chat all the time, because I'm a huge fan of Antiques Roadshow, and, <laughs> which he hosts. And um, I, you know, I was smoking at the time, and um, I was having a marble light, and he, he, he looked at me, and he goes, can I have one of those? I go, you don't smoke. And he goes, well, when I do... If I'm going to cheat, I'm going to cheat with a woman I love because he loved Marble Lights. So I was oh. like, here you go. Um, he was lovely. But anyway, yeah, it was uh, it was a really big show at the time. So people would get attacked and shit. And, so but- what was like, were there any scandalous? Okay, well, that was a scandalous moment. But were there any things that like the person, I mean, if the person lied, was the lie detector really good? Was it, could you tell? I mean, was it always correct? Uh, yeah, well, the answers, the, the lie detectors test happened before. So we would literally, and they were not accurate in my opinion, because they would ask 50 questions at a time. If you, Every single person that runs a polygraph machine will tell you, 10 questions, tops. Because after that, you become tired. I remember one girl that we had, we couldn't even use her as a contestant because she fell asleep in the middle of the polygraph test. Oh, my God. Yeah, there were 50 questions, and they had a full camera crew in, crew in there shooting the polygraph test on a separate soundstage from our soundstage. And uh, they were, you know, we did those days ahead of the big show where we load in the audience, and it's a big, you know, with the host and okay. all that bullshit. But, yeah, they would, we would have to write 50 questions, and I would have to go into Howard's office and go over the questions that I wrote with him and he would you know hem and haw about the way that the language should be in the questions and that it was one of those sessions and it was in front of Danny Breen that he just did that whole really what is your deal Sharon I think you know I don't think it's about Quante I think it's about your you know he just started picking me apart and I just started bawling and I was like I'm not crying because I'm upset you don't scare me I'm frustrated, and when I'm frustrated, I cry, and you're not hearing me. I can't do this job by myself. I can, 
you know, obviously I have no choice and I have to, but I really would like to have someone on my team who's competent. And I don't think it's fair for you to hire a nude model to be my associate producer. <laughs> so that's, and that was a conversation and it was just awful. And I went back to my desk and then Danny came in and he's like, you remind me of Stephanie Wilder. Do you know her? I'm like, I sure do. <laughs> I know because he had lived through it. He probably happened to other people too. Yeah. It didn't happen to anybody else on my show. It only happened to me. I was the only person. And then he fired the supervising producer. or I don't know if she was a co-EP or supervising. And then after all Who of was the, it? Do you remember? Laura Gellis. She used to be an EP on Divorce Court. Okay. I don't know her. So he fired her. And then he's like, you're going to take her place. And I was like, what? So, so he promoted you. Kind of. Yeah. He kind of promoted me. And so when we were shooting the show, I was in I was in a booth, like, making sure everything up on the big screens was correct and making sure the next question was right and that it was loaded and, and whatever. But it were was, you also producing? Yeah. Or did he replace you? I was also producing. He, he, oh. he moved me into, into Laura's position after all of my contestants had already had their day. Okay. So. All right. Yeah. So then was he nice to you after that or did he no. still have it out for you? He just was he he was screaming and yelling at me the whole time on my headset from the truck. Oh, he's the worst. Yeah, he's the worst. But you know, it's fine, uh, you know, whatever. I made it through. I made it to rap. He was very nice to me at the rap party. Um and uh you know, but he he didn't ask me back for the next season, which was fine oh. because it was like, you know, the you know, the more He tried you sued you? Yeah, he tied you sued me. <laughs> You got Todd Yasuid. I got Todd Yasuid. Uh, so did you. No, I yeah, I got Todd Yasuid, but by someone else other than Todd yeah. Yasuid. Um, but yeah, it was just really, it was just a weird, it was just weird and awful. And I, it, I actually felt better when Danny told me that you went through the same thing with Howard. Yeah, I mean, it was really bad. I, I mean, I was young at the time. I mean, it was, you know, over 25 years ago, and I still remember it. Yeah, I remember. I'll never forget it. It's one of the few horror stories I have. And I tell friends all the time, I'm like, you know, with this whole Me Too Time's Up movement, I've never been sexually harassed by a male boss ever. Um, I've never felt unsafe. However, I have been bullied and tortured by several female bosses. And Howard's the only male boss that treated me like shit. That's so interesting. Yeah. I tell people that all the time. I'm like, I have one female EP who's like a mentor to me, who I love personally and professionally. Um, uh, but most of the rest of them were absolutely awful. Absolutely awful. So, um, yeah. And and Howard. And Howard. So, you know, Howard was kind of, you know, Howard was a kind. And just the audience, the reason Stephanie and I are talking about this so openly is Howard's dead. He died. Yeah. <laughs> You know, when I was when we, I was writing books, I was <laughs> I laugh when I talk about him being dead. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> when I was writing books, uh, you have to go through legal after you've written your book, you turn it in, your editor goes over it. Everything's good. Then it has to get uh, vetted by the legal department. And I'll never forget the first time I was having to I wrote a book of essays. My first book of essays was called It's Not Me, It's You. And I wrote some stories about my father in there, my biological father. And the lawyer was on the phone and she's like, well, asking me about this person and that person. And she's like, well, you're OK. So your father, she goes, so is would your is your father something something? And I said, oh, he died. 
And she goes, oh, good. And then she goes, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That sounded totally wrong. She goes, it's just that dead people can't sue. So uh, that's I want to I want to write a book about writing and call it Dead People Can't Sue. Oh, a that's book about genius. like ru- writing rules, because yeah, you can say whatever you want about. She, I was like, really? They can't sue at all? She goes, nope. Their estate can't sue you. Like they can't sue for slander or libel or whatever it is when you well, write I about mean, somebody. Yeah, well, we're telling the truth, so. Right, that's true too. But I'm just yeah. saying, you don't even have to worry about it because you know. Yeah, but when I heard how he died, I was like, it, it was it wasn't satisfying. I know he died on like on like Hawaiian vacation. Yeah, he was like looking at the sunset, and then he just dropped dead like on an episode of Six Feet Under. <laughs> like, why couldn't some something fucking fall on him, or like, you know what I mean? Or get assassinated? Something where he karma? Yeah, comes but, and bites him in the ass. Exactly. Because I the, mean, we weren't the only people he pissed off. Oh no! Well, I mean, a lot no. of people were happy to see him go. Yeah, a lot of people. A lot. I had one group of friends that were sad, and they had had a little memorial for him, and invited yeah. me. And I was like, "No, I'm not coming to that. Yeah. Why would I come to that? That guy made me cry. He made me miserable. And all I wanted to do, all I wanted to do, was please him. All I wanted to do was do a good job, so I would come back if he got picked up. That's all I wanted to do. Yeah. No, he was a very mean person. And so, as you know, I had a an addendum to my time working for him, which oh, was yes, that, this is the big scoop. Yeah. So, okay. So years later, many years later, okay, the show that I, where I, when I worked with him, I think was in the ninety was the nineties. Yeah, in the nineties, that was my first job. Okay, so now now let's fast forward to two thousand and six. I have a baby. I'm married, living in the valley not working in TV. Uh, I've written my first book, which was which was a, a big book. None of my the subsequent uh, four books did as did well. But the first book did really well. It was called Sippy Cups Are Not for Chardonnay um, and other things I had to learn as a new mom. And anyway, happily going minding my own business with a baby in the valley. And I see this article where a woman was suing Howard Schultz. It was like in Deadline or some somewhere. I saw the article, or maybe my husband pointed it out to me. Like, look at this! Somebody's suing Howard Schultz. This woman was suing him for stealing her idea. She'd written a sh- she'd pitched a show on, um, like it, not excessive plastic surgery, but extreme plastic surgery, and I believe it was like called extreme plastic surgery. She'd written this book and then she tried to pitch it as a show. Now, I don't know the exact story, but it had to do with Endeavor and Howard Schultz. And Howard Schultz had was now the executive producer of Extreme Plastic Surgery. And remember the Extreme Home Makeover show? But yeah, it used yeah. to have Extreme the plastic makeover surgery. Extreme Makeover was the first thing. Okay, so Extreme Makeover was yeah. his show. Eventually, because of this lawsuit, they stopped doing Extreme Makeover and it was just Extreme Home Makeover. Do you remember that? Yeah, they no, started it, it mixing was, it up with home makeover and then it was just extreme home makeover and they never again did the plastic surgery one. Yeah. Well, so Howard Schultz was the executive producer of the plastic surgery one. And he, when I read that she was suing him for stealing her idea and she said she'd literally gone in to the office and pitched the idea and they were like, no, thank you. And then suddenly the show's on TV with him as the executive producer 
and they totally acted like they'd never talked to her. They didn't know her and denied it. So I see this and I was like, well, wow, that is so interesting because this part I had haven't told you yet on this podcast, but I had pitched a show to Howard Schultz after my whole experience with him. And like I said, the second season working with him, he was fine. So at the end of that season, I was like, hey, I was really trying to break into the business selling shows. And I was like, he seems like a great place to start. I said, I have a show idea. I was working with another girl. We had a bunch of show ideas. I said, I'd like to pitch you this show idea. It was for a reality show about dating, but it was based on personal ads. And there was no computer dating at the time. So what better person to pitch a show about dating to than a guy who had just sold and had on the air for a few hundred, 300 episodes, a dating show. So I go in, I pitch him the show and he says, huh, that's an interesting idea. I don't think that I can do that show, but listening to your pitch, I just got an idea for a show. And I was like, what? And he's like, I said, what is it? And he goes, I can't tell you that. You're gonna have to sign something saying that you give me the idea. And I was like, well, why do you need the idea if you just came up with your own idea? And he's like, well, do you wanna be in on it with me or not? And I was like, well, what happens if I say no? Like, he's like, well, then I'm gonna pitch it anyway without you. I mean, it was terrible, Sharon. It was like- He's a nightmare. It was violating and it was weird and it was like I was having one of those out-of-body experiences where I'm sitting in this room but going, is this happening? Like, yeah. this is not happening. Yeah. And he's just looking me straight in the face and going, yeah, what do you, and I said, well, you can't do that. And he goes, oh, yes, I can. He goes, I'm Howard Schultz. I run this company. Who's Who are they gonna believe? This is what he said to me in the room. He goes, who are they gonna believe? You or me? So I end up signing this document saying that I'll get 10%, like he wrote a basically an agreement that I'll get royalties. And and the weird thing is in looking back, as I said to you, it's such an odd thing that if, if he really was gonna just steal my idea and say he came up with it, why even include me in on it then? Yeah. Because basically you're admitting that this idea is part mine. But I think he just wanted to give me a really crappy deal do you know what I'm saying? Like, I think he just wanted to be, I think it was just a total power move. I think he was basically going to pitch my idea, but he was going to insert himself so much in it and pretend that he was one of the creators that I would just get a small part of it. That's what I think he was trying to do was I think he really in some weird way was including me. Like you're going to develop it with me, but I'm just going to give you such a small part of it. You're going to get 10%, no created by like, it was a it was a best intention to even make you uh, give you a job on the show. It was like that kind of deal. And I was so mad. But that happened in the 90s right after I'd finished working for him and I'd kind of written it off. Like I I complained about it to people through the years, told them the story. I wasn't trying to hide it. I was like, you're not going to believe what this guy did to me. Right. When I read the article, I was like, "Oh my god, I was so mad." So I called the lawyer and I was like, hey, you don't know me from anywhere, but this guy, Howard Schultz, did the exact same thing to me years ago, you know? Uh, I was like, and I'm happy to tell you the story, and he was like, please do, you know? So I, I just tell him the story. I was like, I went in his office, he told, he's looked at me right in the face and said, I'm taking your idea and there's nothing you can do about it. 
And I was like, it was terrible. And he's like, would you be willing to testify to that? And I said, yes. I mean, that's what happened. And he was like, do you still have the document? And I was like, I sure do. I still have the document. I saved it. And um, so I ended up getting deposed for this case. And so this is now years later. And Howard Schultz was in the deposition. And it was like a big deal thing. I didn't realize what this was going to be like. And I was sitting in a in a law, a law office in Century City with this with Howard Schultz's lawyer. I think someone from Endeavor, Howard Schultz, this lawyer, and then the lawyer for the woman who was suing the plaintiff, and me. And I'm getting deposed for like two days. And I think she had gotten deposed before me. And I was basically getting cross examined. I mean, it was like an episode of Law and Order, but real life. I mean, it was crazy. And Howard Schultz sat in that room and stared at me like I was a piece of shit and he was so cocky and tried to be really intimidating. I mean, just staring at me. And then I was reading you parts the other day of the deposition where I'm literally going, stop staring at me. I'm not going to be intimidated by you. Like, why are you doing that? I mean, everyone in the room was going, you're being ridiculous right now. And that his lawyer was like, crazy. Yeah. That's so funny. For some reason, I thought that you were in a courtroom for the deposition, but you were in a conference room in Century City. I was in a law office conference room. Yeah, so but it was like a court reporter. There was a court reporter. I was I was under oath, basically. Right. Was there you get a deposed under oath? Was there a, a was there a judge there or someone like no? Oh. No, but so what happens is you get deposed and then they try they but at one point the lawyer for the plaintiff who was kind of representing me I mean objecting to things on my behalf you know uh was got so mad at the other lawyer and he was like you know what if you don't stop if you don't knock it off and stop asking her such inappropriate questions he goes I'll bring this to the judge and the, I'm gonna bring the judge the whole transcript of this and they're gonna see you know like what an asshole you're being right now and how out of line you are and all these questions. And I guarantee you that Judge Heiberg, that was the name, will not be amused. Like, this is no joke. Right, because that attorney was asking you about your dating life and did you ever try to hit on guys on this set and all this? Oh, every person that he brought up, he was like, did you date them? Yeah, did you have a relationship with them? It was so awful. Oh, he was asking me so many inappropriate questions because he was trying to get me. And so then he accused, so... Just to bring up full circle, he was talking about this job that I had. He was trying to say that I'd gotten fired from jobs. And I was like, I've never been fired from a television job. And he's like, oh, really? Well, didn't you work for Todd Yasui? And I said, yes. So Todd Yasui was this executive producer that I worked with on a show who hated me, did not fire me, threatened to fire me, did not fire me. but. Well, I finished this, the amount of episodes we were doing and they got they got four ended up getting another order for four more episodes and I was not asked back to do the four more episodes. Uh, so, I mean, in his mind, maybe he thought he fired me, but he did not fire me. He didn't have the power to fire me. I never got told, like, you're not coming back. He just I didn't come back. So then he just kept asking me about it and going, well, didn't Todd Yasui think that you had a smart mouth and think that you were, uh, yeah, what it had a bad attitude. And I just kept saying like, I, yeah, probably, I guess he did, but he didn't fire me. 
it was terrible. Well, that's the thing. It's like, we all know how it works. Just because you don't get asked back, that doesn't mean you were fired. You just weren't asked back. Right. If you want to fire somebody so that it's, that's on the record as, but you have to fire them. You have to say you're fired. You're done. You're not coming back. You're not finishing your, the shows. Yeah. Here's your paperwork so you can file for unemployment. Right. You can't just, I mean, you can't go to hiatus and then later you, the show finds out they, they get more episodes and they, you can't call the person up and go, guess what? You're fired. It's like, well, I don't work there anymore anyway. Like a lot of people move on during a hiatus and get another job anyway. Right. Well, that's the thing. It's like, yeah, it, it totally. We almost always get another job during the hiatus. And like right. Howard could have fired me from the moment of truth. Instead, he decided to keep me there and torture me <laughs> until the very last day and then not ask me back for the next season. So I just felt like I worked my ass off and then redeemed myself to not. I mean, that's one thing. Another thing that I learned is like no good. You know, they always that saying no good deed goes unpunished. Right. I'm not going to give 300 percent to your production anymore because it never turns into me getting hired again like like I've worked really hard for this one person and then I wasn't working and I really needed a job and they hired someone that they had fired instead of me Sharon that happens so much and I swear to God I tell my husband this all the time because my husband has a really good work ethic he always goes in and works so hard and he works really long hours and I'm like it doesn't ever pay off. No. Because the person who went in there and fucked around and didn't care and, you know, or was mean to people or whatever, those people just keep failing up. They keep getting the next job and they get promoted, whereas the people who just work really hard get forgotten about. Yeah, like at this job that I have right now, I'm not phoning it in, but I'm not like working my ass off and I'm not thinking about I'm not going to think about it this weekend I'm just not usually I'm that person that's like I'm going to give you 500% like I'm going to work my ass off I'm going to give it all to you I'm not doing that on this one I'm just like I'm doing my best during the hours that I'm there and then when I leave I'm forgetting about it and they love me (laughs) (laughs) it's like what oh okay I might edit that out of the episode because <laughs> I don't think you should. I know, but what if they listen and they go, "Wait, are you phoning it in?" No, I'm not phoning it in, but I'm not going to think about it on Sunday. I'm just not. No, because but that's normal. But guess what? People that the people that do may not even do as good a job when they're there as you do. Oh, I think they do. Every this team is really great, and they're all so nice. Like I'm really grateful that everybody's very very nice. Yeah, I've, I mean, it makes such a difference. I mean, I've had a lot of jobs in my time and the ones that, the jobs that, where you work with great people and the bosses are nice are a pleasure, you yeah. know? It's a pleasure to go to work. I mean, listen, I'm in a windowless office, but I have an office and everything's like these open workplaces now, these work plans, and you can't make, make phone calls without hearing everybody else's phone call and you're sticking one finger in your ear going, what, what? Sometimes you don't even, they don't even give you a phone and you know, you have no place to sit. Whereas this right. place, it's like, here's your seat. Here's some post-its. Here's a pen. Here's a, a lamp. And I'm just like, are you fucking kidding me? You, wow. Like I feel... You know, it's really lovely, and they're all very, very nice. The, the company's called Glassman Media. They're really, really nice there. Yeah, I worked – I mean, it's interesting because I worked on the big date for Howard, and he was horrible. 
But then I worked on uh, the dating game at one point for a boss, this is Michael Cantor, and just the nicest guy. Like, same type of show, same type of work I did, interviewing contestants, trying to come up with funny questions for them, briefing them before the show, sitting with them in the room, going over stuff with them, calling them on the phone, all the same type of work, only one boss couldn't have been nicer and more respectful and like let me do my job and appreciated me and thought my material was really funny and laughed out loud at stuff I wrote and you know told me a lot oh you're doing such a good job and one boss was the polar opposite and just mean and awful and angry yeah same thing it wasn't like one of the jobs was so much more of a amazing show that needed a boss that just reined everybody in I mean it was the same schlocky dating show but they just but, had uh, they were just kind. Yeah. It's this thing you don't you don't have to be an asshole to run a show. You don't have to. No, you don't. But some people feel like they do. But they but you you really don't. You really really don't. No. All right, we have to talk about Alice and Mac before we wrap this up. Okay. <laughs> so, Alice and Mac is the woman that was uh trying to get a lot of other women into her into a sex cult how do you say the name the of that sex cult nexivum i think it's nexium nexium yeah. isn't nexium the name of a heartburn medication i think it is but <laughs> yes i'm pretty sure it's nexium it's either for fucking or heartburn so years ago i got this i got a tweet i got tweeted at by allison mack and she was like, hi, I'm an actress, and um, I'd love to talk to you about this uh, women's empowerment. I'd love to talk to you. And I was so pleased with myself because I looked her up, and I'm like, oh, my God. Like, she's on a TV show, and she's <laughs> tweeting at me. So, like, obviously, I'm pretty important. And I was like to my husband, I was like, oh, my God, honey, I've arrived. Like, there's a celebrity that's trying to be my friend right now. And John goes, oh, I think that's a cult. And I was like, what? How dare you? What? Oh, really? Oh, just so somebody famous tweets at me and that's how you're going to respond? Like, oh, it's a cult? Please. <laughs> so okay, so she, so I friended her, or good, well, I followed her on Twitter so that she could direct message me. And then she's direct messaged me and she was like, I'm so glad you responded. I would love to tell you about this um, women's, this this group. And I write back, oh, is it a charity? And you can look on my Facebook page because I show, I printed out, I did a screenshot of all the direct messages. Um, <gasps> and did? my Facebook page is public. Yes, I screenshot both things, the tweet, the original tweet, and all the DMs. Oh, the, my God. The, it's all on my Facebook in the last, like, couple of weeks. And so she wrote, oh, um, I, and I was like, oh, what is it a charity? And she writes back, no, not a charity. It's a women's empowerment group. I'd really love to talk to you more about it. Do you have time to chat? So then I don't respond because I think that's when John was like, it's a charity. I mean, it's a it's a cult. And I was like, God, really? Just my luck. Like the first time <laughs> a celebrity, like I'm about to be totally famous. Like next step, Jennifer Aniston. Right, right. right. Like, Next up, I'm like Chelsea and I'm vacationing with Jen Aniston and like, you know, and my <laughs> life is going to change. Smallville and then the, you know, somebody from the cast of Friends. I don't care if it's Lisa Kudrow. Somebody from Friends is good, about to be my friend. 
And so, but I don't respond. And then I guess it was like a couple weeks later, you can look on the thing. She writes me again and she was like, Hey, I'm going to be in LA. Like, can you meet me for coffee? And I didn't respond. And then years later, I see the news story and I'm like, Oh my God, the girl from Smallville. I'm like, that is the girl that tried to get me to go to the meeting of her cult. So I got super excited. It's almost <laughs> better than it's almost better than she was trying to be friends with me. She was trying to get me to come to her sex cult. That's crazy. I know. The only thing is, I think they were kind of casting the net wide at the beginning, and then you had to sort of be plucked out of the the group to be right. in the actual sex cult. But I have belief in myself. And I feel like if I'd been in the bigger group, I would have been one of the people pulled out to be in the sex cult. I, I know what I do. I do believe that. <laughs> I do believe that because you, because a lot of the women who were part of the sex cult were attractive brunettes. Oh, really? Yeah. Like you look like the other, some of the other women. I know. I worry that I wasn't thin enough though. He no, likes them totally really skinny. He likes them skinny, skinny, though. You're These women were skinny. on, like, limited calorie diets. I would have had to work on myself a little bit. You're really skinny. <laughs> Steph, you're really skinny. Oh, my God. Thank you, Sharon. So you're saying you do think I could have been in the sex cult? I, to I, think, no, I think you would have definitely been asked. I don't know if you could have been. I don't know if you would have had the stamina. I don't think you would have let somebody brand you. But... The invitation would have been extended. Well, I did get a bird tattoo when I was 42. So I think did I might really? have been able to handle the branding. <laughs> Where's your tattoo? On my ankle. Oh. What'd you do that for? Uh, you know why? Because on my TV show, Parental Discretion, I thought it would be a fun thing to do. Just because <gasps> my whole thing was like, I'm a, just because I'm a mom doesn't mean I can't be like a badass. Right. So I was like, I'm going to get a tattoo. And then my whole the whole thing was like, screw you, PTA. Like, Oh, that's fun. Yeah. But I mean, obviously, there was a part of me that I'd always wanted to have a tattoo. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done it. Right. Just for the show. But it was a good excuse to just do that. I don't know. It's so painful. I can't do I want. I've always wanted a tattoo, but I don't. I know I couldn't deal with the pain. It's not that painful. It didn't hurt that much. It, it would drive me crazy. Well, I say don't do it then. Yeah, I'm but not going to do But do go for branding because everybody should be branded. <laughs> well, you know, you, you've got to be a brand. You might as well get branded <laughs> with your brand. I just be like, this is my brand. It's called branding. Like I branded myself. This is myself. literally my brand. I'm going to literally my brand. It's right here next to my vagina. <laughs> I mean, these people are crazy. I would never get into a cult. I had a guy once. Remember the Trader Joe's, which is no longer there. It's now a, a really crappy apartment building. But the Trader Joe's on Santa Monica and Poinsettia. Yes. I, some I guy tried to talk me into being in a cult there. There's that. There was that cult, or that. It was like a Ponzi scheme going in L.A. where they would say, uh, if you give them like a thousand dollars, and every month everybody gets together and somebody's gifted fifteen thousand dollars, and it just goes around in a circle, and you have to recruit more people so other people can. It was this weird. Right, it's a pyramid scheme. Pyramid scheme, and right. um, and this guy kept talking to me about it in the Trader Joe's parking lot. For some reason, people who like to talk to strangers in parking lots, I'm the, per I'm the person they pick. They're like, hey, lady, 
what's going on? And because I'm so lovely, I'm like, good morning. And then next thing you know, I'm being talked about a, a pyramid scheme. And I'm like, I'm not interested. You have to get the fuck away from me right now. And then I turn into, you know, kind of a not nice person. Right, right. I think the thing is that some people do get the money, but then a bunch of people don't end up get like once the pair, once it starts to fizzle out, all the later people get nothing. Right. So they have to and keep then, recruiting more angry. people. Right. It's. I mean, but this. I mean, L.A. It's the land of nuts and fruits, man. Yeah. I mean, you grew yep. up here. I didn't. Well, I lived here from when I was two to when I was twelve. So I sort of grew up here, and then I moved to Spokane, Washington, for like four years and then Springfield, Massachusetts for like three more years. And then I came back here when I was 18 and I've been here ever since. See, you're a California girl. I'm a California girl. Yeah. I went to junior high and high school and other places, but since then California all the way. Nice. Well, uh, Steph, I'm so glad you made time to do my podcast. It was so fun, Sharon. And we need to hang out and do more stuff together. Absolutely. I would love to. All okay. Right, so, so, well, every you're already kind of famous on the internet, but can you tell my people who, even though most of them already know who you are, but there might be somebody who doesn't know who you are. So tell them where they can find you. Okay. So uh, my re my regular podcast that I do every two, twice a week. Uh, it's on uh, Podcast One. It's called For Crying Out Loud, and I do that podcast with Lynette Carolla. We both have twins, and we talk about parenting, but also it's kind of funny and fun and. We talk about everything. And then I also do a podcast called Rose Pricks with Ronnie Karam from Watch What Crappens. And that is one of my favorite jobs ever. We recap The Bachelorette. So that will be starting up later this month. And um, that is on Acast. But you can just look up rosepricks.com and find that one. And then I do one more podcast really quick. It's an after show to the podcast Sword and Scale, which is a true crime podcast. And Matt Fondelier and I, my co-host, we basically recap every episode of Sword and Scale. That's hilarious. I've and never heard of a Sword recap. Sword and Scale Rewind. Oh, wow. So are recapping shows now popular where people recap a podcast? I don't know, but this podcast is, you know, it's sort of like if you were recapping Dateline or something. Right. So it's like an hour-long show about crazy stuff that ha you know crazy murders and stuff and so uh it's a very popular podcast can i pitch a podcast a recapping podcast idea to you sure do you think people would be into i i love reality shows from the uk uh-huh and i thought why not do a recapping show called called usa recaps the uk or something like that and i would just recap reality shows that are on Netflix from the UK. I like that. I don't think anybody would listen. Well, it's kind of a niche podcast. That's my problem is I have niche taste. I think a really good uh, uh, podcast recapping show would be one for 90 Day Fiance. Yeah, I will not watch that hot. shit. Yeah, I can't watch it. I want to watch it. I watched like the first season of it and I want to be in on it because everybody talks about that show. 
Yeah, see, I don't. That's the thing. I don't care. I'm, I'm like telling everybody about these UK shows, and they're like, "I've never heard of them. Where can I see them?" I'm like, "Netflix, you fucking idiots! It's on <clears> Netflix. <throat> like, these are the greatest shows I've ever seen." I mean, Steph, they have no reaction to someone trashing their house. There's this <clears throat> show called uh, Nightmare Tenants, Slum Landlords, and first of all, almost all the shows are women, female VO driven, and they're like, "This person rent out their house. They're." 40,000 pounds in arrears. And then, I mean, it's crazy. So then the landlord finally gets the apartment back, which, by the way, you can go to the UK and live for free. Nobody has to pay rent there. It's insane because it takes forever for the landlord to get you out. So they have a slum land, they have a slum tent, they have a shitty tenant in. Once they get their place back, then it's completely trashed. And the homeowner just walks in and goes, ugh, they left it in a state. (laughs) <laughs> and that's it. They don't like in the U.S. We would be like crying. We'd be cursing them. We'd be right. trying to kill them. We'd be losing our fucking minds. On this show, they're just like, well, I guess I'm gonna have to mop it. Oh boy, <laughs> you know. I mean, there's just no. They're so reserved. It's insane. That's funny. It's funny. You gotta watch that show. I'm but gonna watch it. You gotta watch it. But I, mean, I thought maybe more people will watch the shows if they listen to my recapping show. But I don't think it's supposed to work that way. They're supposed to, everybody's supposed to watch the show and then want to hear you recap it. Yeah, because I listen to Watch What Crappens. That's uh, my friend Ronnie Karam and Ben Mandelker's podcast. And they do a bunch of Bravo shows. But I used to think that I could listen to it even if I didn't watch the show just because they're so fun and funny. But I did realize I it's harder to follow along unless you've seen what they're talking about and can go like, oh, my God, yes, that was a funny scene. So I, I only watch Real Housewives of Beverly Hills and New York, so I could only listen to them recap those shows. Oh, interesting. I The only recapping show, I, it's, a, it's something I watch. I don't listen to it. It's called Gay of Thrones. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I watch – yeah, it's a recap of the Game of Thrones, but – I don't watch Game of Thrones, but I love Gay of Thrones. So I can talk oh. about gay I can talk about Game of Thrones at work because I saw Gay of Thrones. <laughs> and it's like I love that. It's like two minutes long. It's brilliant. Right. Yeah. Oh. It's, yeah. It's good. I wanna watch it. It's a YouTube show or a podcast? It's on YouTube. It's a YouTube okay. show. Yeah. Okay. It's it's a queen and it's one of the guys from Queer Eye, but I knew him as the Gay of Thrones. And then I saw him on Queer Eye and I got very excited because I want more people to know who he is. But I would watch Gay of Thrones and it's just him doing someone's hair and they just talk about, oh, girl, did you see Game of Thrones last night? Did I? And then they just (laughs) recap the whole episode and it's intercut with footage. It's fucking brilliant. I'm going to check it out. You got to check it out. All right. Well, um, I'm sure. uh, Thank you so much for doing the podcast. You're welcome. Okay. Okay. We'll talk soon. I'll do it again soon. Fabulous. Yes. We have to talk more. We have more stories. 